Hello and welcome to Brave Hearts Rising, a podcast dedicated to the empaths, deep feelers, dreamers and rebels of the world. For so long we've been told that we must work hard, not make a fuss and put everybody else's needs first. We have learned to ignore our body's rhythms and push through for the sake of productivity and being liked. I'm here to say no more. Let's start listening to our bodies and hearts and give ourselves permission to take up space. Why? Because your ripple effect matters. In these episodes, we explore what it takes to live a wholehearted life, one where you thrive from the inside out. Here at Brave Hearts Rising, we value diversity, compassion, creativity, and kindness because we know that the world is a brighter place to be when you are free to show up as who you really are, not who the world wants you to be. Before we dive in, a little about me. I'm your host, Lisa Pascoe, and I am also a intuitive life coach. I help empaths, highly sensitive women and LGBTQ plus folks in their 30s and 40s to slow down and prioritise their well-being so that they can be more present in their lives and experience more joy. To find out more about the work that I do, please check out www.lisapascoe.com, of course, after you've listened to this episode first. Hello and welcome to season four, episode four of the Brave Hearts Rising podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Pascoe, and today I'm talking to the delightful Rachel Keeley. Rachel is the host of Over the Rainbow podcast, which is an LGBTQ podcast dedicated to queer education and queer representation. She is also a PhD student at the University of Leicestershire and is specialising in LGBTQ online hate. She recently started an international online queer book club, Reading the Rainbow. And in this conversation, we take a deep dive into all things queer and community. Rachel tells us what inspired her to start her own podcast, as well as what led her to dedicating an entire PhD to the study of LGBTQ plus online hate. She gives us some great tips for how to be an ally. And we also explore Rachel's own coming out story, as well as exploring your own identity. Importantly, I think we talk about what we can do to help each other as different communities and the power of questioning your language, particularly around gender and the stories that we've been given and the messaging that we've been given around gender growing up and how this can serve to create a box that we then try and fit ourselves into and actually the beauty of questioning those stories and creating creating our own stories for ourselves, our own ways to express who we are and the beauty of kind of breaking down those box walls. It was a real pleasure to talk to Rachel. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. So please enjoy. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, no, I'm excited for our conversation today. I've been following your podcast for a little while now, your account on Instagram. And yeah, it's really great to see how you're bringing a voice to kind of lgbtq plus activism and just giving it a space and yeah i'm looking forward to chatting today so i'm going to start with a light one recently you posted on instagram about you know it's important to find things that make you happy in life so what's making you happy at the moment definitely my girlfriend and my sausage dog obviously life is very limited here in the uk right now but even if it wasn't i think they would still be my choice yeah, I've been very lucky to buy a house with my partner. So we're just getting ready, doing that up, making it all nice for when we can actually have people around. And then we just have my little sausage dog, Teddy, pitter-pattering around, 
thinking that he can get involved. <laughs> How old is Teddy? He is two in March, so he's going to have his second lockdown birthday, poor little oh. guy. <laughs> it, are you finding he's a bit like a teenager? Like, is he is he acting up or is he absolutely fine? He's No, he's pretty good. I mean, he, he acts up like any dog does if there's, like, food involved or he's being left out of a room he wants to be in but he's actually a really he's a really good dog so we're very lucky because I have a sausage dog um Henry and I remember when he was about 18 months he was just really tricky but thankfully he's five now and he's just kind of mellowed and he just like wants to climb on my lap and I'm just I love it now yeah (laughs) they are such lap dogs aren't they (laughs) yeah sausage dogs my favorite anyway so yes and I know also you love to read as well and you are starting a book club I am yeah which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit as well but growing up what kind of books did you kind of read what what kind of inspired you growing up in terms of books and authors um so growing up I used to read just sort of all the all the big fantasy books that you would think about when you think of childhood books so Harry Potter I was there even Twilight I was also there like questionable I know (laughs) I enjoyed it and then I never really read to think at that stage I don't think anyone really does uh, although maybe they do Um, but then when I went to university I did a philosophy degree so it was dedicated to reading to think Mm -hmm. Um, and so then I really got into books that really made me think about like life ethical issues social issues like more non-fiction real life application books so my all-time favorite book it's not actually non-fiction it is a fictional book it's Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand I don't know if you've ever heard of it it I mean it's it's a book it's big it's over a thousand pages long it's a chunk and it deals with economics politics philosophy ethics you name it it's in there but the 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 thing that I really love about the book is apart from everything it's it's understanding and it's a treatment of human potential so basically it argues that all humans have are rational they have a thinking human mind but we take that for granted and we take for granted the power of a person's intellect and the power of having a free society to produce things in society so for example when you're going to get a cup of coffee or you're going to buy a loaf of bread we don't really think about the fact that someone's mind came up with how to make a coffee how to produce a coffee cup how to make bread and it's so that I mean of the many issues it deals with it deals with what we are capable of in society if people are free to use their intellect to produce and I think that that's now I think that that's quite a nice reflection on what the LGBTQ plus community or what minority communities would be free to do if they were free because we are we are limited in a way and I just think that mm-hmm. untapped potential that's there is it's ready to go <laughs> yeah no I love that um I recently read what I'm reading still Adrian Marie Brown's The Emergent Strategy and in that she's really inspired by um there's a sci-fi writer Octavia Butler and she talks about how we are limited by other people's imaginations because all of the structures that the way that we organize society has been dreamt up by other people and how you know we have the potential to kind of imagine the future or reimagine how how we operate how we are in the world and I find that just basic concept really really inspiring to think that actually 
just because things are like this right now, there are other possibilities, but kind of together we need to dream up those possibilities, you know? Yeah, I love that. That sounds like a great book. I'll have to read that as well. <laughs> it is a really great book. You know, that's definitely one for your book club at some yeah. point. <laughs> so you're currently doing a PhD in LGBTQ hate and discrimination, is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And like having just only done a master's myself, not quite gone gone to PhD level. Um, I know it's a massive commitment. Yes. <laughs> massive undertaking. Why why this topic? You know, what kind of led you to choosing to like dedicate so much time and energy and attention into that topic specifically? So it stemmed from when I was doing my master's up in Durham. I was walking down the street with my girlfriend at the time, just holding hands and someone beeped in their car and shouted out the window at us. And I didn't quite catch what they'd said, but then they looped round at the roundabout that was just ahead to come back by us and beep and shout slurs out the window again. And I was like, I'm, I'm literally not doing anything. I'm holding hands with my partner. Like, what is going on? And I, I'd been out for a couple of years and I'd obviously gone through all the fears of like coming out to your loved ones, but I'd never really thought about the concept of hate crime and the fact that, I mean, people you know, but also complete strangers will discriminate against you based on your identity. So I did a bit of Googling and my mind was blown and I did my master's dissertation on that and then thought, you know what, 10,000 words and a couple of months is not enough. I've just scratched the surface. I need to go deeper. I need to look at what we can do to help the LGBTQ plus community because I don't think enough people are, are talking about this and in particular enough people are not talking about this hate that occurs online so that's Mm -hmm. specifically what I'm looking at and yeah I just want to help people so they know I have to go through the experience that I went through yeah no it's so important I love that you mentioned the holding hands piece because I know even now like I'm almost 38 I've been out a long time but I still don't feel comfortable holding hands with um, Becky out out and about because because of that potential and because you know there's there's always that risk that someone will take umbrage <laughs> what a word uh, we just won't like it basically and will be mean to you and you know I think if you're someone particularly if you've ever had any trauma or anything in your background where you know there is a rip that, that that fear of violence or fear of something happening it can it's just it has a massive impact and I don't think I don't think I realised how much of an impact all these little things can have on you until probably kind of this last year, reading more about, because obviously we had the Black Lives Matter and more and more people increasingly speaking up about that. And then that led to more and more posts around intersectionality and to just the different ways that people make themselves small in their lives. Like with, And you, you don't really realise that you're doing it sometimes, I don't think. So just kind of drawing parallels from that and then thinking about like, how am I making myself, how am I making myself small because of my sexuality? Like, how am I making that, how am I kind of like, kind of almost minimising my sexuality and how I see the world? Yeah, I found that really interesting because I came out in 1998, like a really long time ago. So it almost felt like that's just, it's just who I am. And my family and friends, well, obviously a lot of my friends are, gay or queer or bi and my parents are totally cool so you forget though out in the wider world that you you 
you are your own censor. It's that self-censorship. Like you don't talk about something or bring up a particular conversation in a group because you think, oh, you know, maybe that's a bit much. What is the situation right now? Like, what are you learning about the situation around hate and discrimination with, um, against the LGBTQ plus community? Let's start there. Yeah. I'm learning that it's it's insidious. It is absolutely everywhere. It's it's not just the sort of extreme instances that one would think of in terms of people getting beaten up for being gay, although that obviously does happen. It is the everyday subtle comments that are just sort of underpinning most people's interactions, but also underpinning the way that they walk and talk in the world that is just constantly marginalising LGBTQ plus people and other minorities as well. But if we're speaking specifically about LGBTQ plus people, it's things like using the word gay to mean like, oh, that's stupid, like saying, oh, that's so gay, or saying don't go near that person they're gay or just gay people are disgusting there's just so many different examples and when I was so I did a survey and then follow-up interviews and when I was surveying people 98% of people have either experienced or observed online hate in their lifetime and that is a massive massive number we're talking two percent of people have never seen it and I don't know who those 2% of people are, but they are bloody lucky because I know I've seen it every day I go online, whether it's in someone's Twitter feed, whether it's in the comments of a news article about gender and you get all the transphobic comments below it. It's just, it's, it's everywhere you look. And it's even within the language we use every day, to be honest, in terms of the gendered language we use when we say, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Like, you may think nothing of it, but well, actually... What about all the non-binary people? Do they just not exist or are you not saying hello to them? Like, which either way, it's it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I totally agree. Um, I think the best one I heard or read was, uh, hey, guys, gals and non-binary pals. Because that was quite nice. Don't start yeah. me on the term lady, because honestly, <laughs> I want to get a T-shirt with, like, don't call me lady on it. Because it does, it triggers something from when I was, like, younger that I've always been very, very vehemently against being called a lady because there's just so much it's a very weighted term and and people will say ladies and men and I'm like but they're not they're not this that's not apple and apple that's no. they're very different um words and I don't think people quite always realize just how, how different they are well exactly it's so late isn't it it's not just the fact that actually you've just erased an entire group of people but also it is the fact that it comes with the fact that men and women aren't equal either let alone non-binary people because the men the word man itself is quite neutral whereas the word lady let's face it from a very young age if you socialize as female then you are told like how to be a lady that's not very ladylike you know and and so yeah anyway so that's definitely one of my bugbears I mean we'll go on to talk about allyship because I think that's important of course I recently had Eve on on the podcast and I think more and more people are interested in thinking about how all the ways that they can you know how we can help each other as different communities and um, people who care but it can be really overwhelming because there's so many different issues and things to think about in the world more and more people are interested in the small and the big ways in which we can help people because often sometimes small things can actually be really impactful and I know for me sometimes it is just challenging language can actually be really powerful I remember 
being at a meeting and I have a part-time role and, and they were talking about men, women and children harmed by X, for example. And I I raised the issue eventually in the chat. I was nervous, I'm not going to lie, because, you know, when you're in a room and it was a virtual room and someone says, you know, is everyone okay with that language? And, like, everyone just seems to be fine. And I'm sat there being like, do I say something? Do I say something? I really don't want to be that person. I don't want to be the awkward one that's like, hello. (laughs) And I eventually I did just put in a chat, actually, that's not very inclusive. And in the end, they just put adults, adults and children. I'm like, perfect, simple. Simple solution, yeah. But there's nothing necessarily inherently wrong with people not always knowing the right language to use. But I think it's always important that we question that which we use because that in itself is powerful because we all know how deep our conditioning goes, um, whether that's around gender or race, sexuality. They're like the roots of like a dandelion or something. They go deep and they can be quite hard to completely take out as it were (laughs) and plant something new and so yeah I think questioning those things are really important just seeing is there another way that we can talk about this actually what what's the impact rather than just doing the same thing you've always done and, and not thinking about it which brings us nicely to the topic of allyship and like what would you say are some of the top ways that people can be allies to the LGBTQ plus community I think to start with, it's important to say that you don't have to know and do everything all at once. It's not going to be an overnight, right, now I'm an ally, but that means I need to get everything right all of the time. It it absolutely doesn't. And it also doesn't mean that the people who you're trying to sort of emulate, such as maybe myself, if people think that I'm, I'd like to think I'm a good ally, but like I don't know everything either. I'm probably just two steps ahead of you. There's a couple of extra things I've learned how to do to be inclusive. Meanwhile, I'm learning from someone else who's two steps ahead of me. And I think it's it's just so, so important to know that from the get-go that you don't have to overwhelm yourself and think, oh my God, I've got to learn 10,000 things and I shouldn't speak until I know because if I get it wrong, then I'm the worst person in the world. Like You're not. It's It's okay to start small because it's something that we want to be a permanent change in the world we want it to last so we don't want to overwhelm the people who are trying to be allies by mm-hmm. beating them down for making mistakes and then having said that I think I mean there's always a couple of ways that you can take this and I think you ask different people they will have different opinions on the ways you take this but for me I am happy for people to ask me I know not everyone is I know people are absolutely sick of having to do the work educating other Mm -hmm. people and I completely respect that I do I can totally see why you feel like that because there's Google there's books there's like so much wealth of resources out there but I think the art of conversation is so so powerful and that real-time interaction Mm -hmm. with someone where someone asks you a question you're able to talk it through with them you're able to unpick those structures in their mind, their their upbringing, why it is that they've maybe accidentally used gendered language or they've said, have you got a boyfriend rather than have you got a partner? Being able to unpick that carefully in a conversation, in a safe environment where they don't feel Mm -hmm. judged. It's just, let's learn together. This isn't just a one-sided thing. Let's both learn from each other Mm -hmm. and then we can leave and you know that you're a better ally. I think that for me, that's the best way. So I, I love having these conversations with people and I would always welcome them to reach out to me 
to know what to do. Yeah. And I think the key there is, you know, some people kind of dedicate their lives to having those conversations and they dedicate all of their energy and their work. And that's kind of like the main focus. Like a lot of your focus is around that. And yeah, it's being mindful. Like I don't mind having conversations with people, but I know that for some, it just, it can become exhausting, especially if you work in a workplace that's very heterosexual and it's kind of tiring having to to be that person for other people. And I think it's also really exhausting for minorities, people in the minority to be the ones always doing the emotional labor. Like why are we having to always fight for things to be better? And it really struck me last year reading again it was more linked to the black lives matter movement but again i feel like i've i've learned a lot about myself in lots of different ways through that but it was that, that sense of like being black isn't exhausting it's the whiteness and yeah. so then for me i was thinking you know it isn't like about being gay in the world isn't exhausting necessarily being queer doesn't make you more likely to be aren't mentally unwell for example have ill mental health it's being queer in a heterosexual world that creates that and that was a real light bulb for me because you know statistically um lgbtq plus youth are more likely to self-harm and, and again it's not because there's something inherently wrong with you which i think is what society would have us believe for so long trans people were deemed mentally unwell I feel like that's the biggest kind of gaslighting situation of all is like convincing you that there's something wrong with you when actually it's the environment around you saying the way that you are in the world, the way that you think about the world, the way that you love in the world is wrong and you need to change that. And that was massive, I think, for me. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It is the social structures that are in society that need to change and evolve. It's not a case that we as LGBTQ plus people need to try and fit in this heteronormative box and just like hope that when we're at that party in the box that everyone's okay with us and "Mm, yeah we'll just rub along nicely like no that box needs to be expanded or actually if anything that box needs to be bloody ripped apart I don't know if I can swear on your podcast I didn't ask (laughs) it needs to be ripped apart and thrown in the bin and we just create an evil playing field no walls no limits everyone can just be who they are together and like you say it it shouldn't be the work of the minorities having to do that it should be the work of the oppressors of the people on top and I think they are starting to do that but I think sadly whether it's right or wrong and I would argue it's wrong we've grown up in such a heteronormative cisgendered model of society that they almost don't know what to do without our help now And so whether that is them going to look at LGBTQ plus resources, going to training, thinking about how they have upheld these hierarchical structures, how they've reinforced the patriarchy and what that is doing to minorities, if they can reflect on that in their own time. Brilliant. They need to. But at the same time, we need queer voices. We need black voices. We need people of colour. We need all of these voices as well to create that powerful movement because without them they're, they're still marginalized they're still on the outside it's like sorry I'm on a roll here now it's like at the BBC the other day having that interview about um the Bellevue Tavistock Trust and they'd got Kira Bell on who was one of the complainants on the Bellevue Tavistock case I can go into detail on that if people want to know what that is but essentially she is cisgender and then they had the um 
CEO, I think the correct word is, of Mermaids, which is a trans charity here in the UK. But she's also cisgender. She is a fantastic woman. Her daughter is trans. She's like she set up Mermaids essentially for her daughter and for people like her daughter. But this conversation about trans healthcare did not include a single trans person. And it's like, well, how can you fully understand it if you're not talking to trans people? And the BBC said, oh, we don't need to. And it's like, mm. oh, okay, well, fuck you then, because you do. Yeah. Yeah. It's 2021. I get with the programme, basically. Having worked in mental health and I'm specifically peer support, it's just so important to have the voices of people with lived experience as part of the conversations, as part of the policy making. Because without that, like you're just guessing what people need, you're assuming what people need, and you miss all the nuance. You miss the real life, what 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 things really feel like. And of course, like, you know, we're both two queer women, we'll see the world very differently, we'll have different experiences of the world, and that's why the intersectional piece is so important because it's, it's all of those different parts of our identities that come along. And I think what I'll add to the, what you were saying about allyship, for me, I think unpacking stuff around gender is probably one of the biggest things, like one of the biggest big things people can do in terms of their own inner work um, and looking at the stories that they've been given around gender, because that's when you end up with comments like, who wears the trousers? Uh, you know, like, who's the man in the relationship? You know, that <laughs> those are the things that actually maybe if you took a step back, you go, there doesn't this doesn't need to be one. Like those roles of like this person does this and this person does the cooking, they don't have they don't have to exist. You can actually create your own blend of like relationship and it can look like anything you want it to look like when you start to tear down that gender those gender roles and it doesn't have to be emasculating and it doesn't have to take away your womanhood. you get to define what that is for you and what that looks like for you and the other thing I wanted to add to that was what was the other thing I wanted to add to that because I just remember thinking "Hmm." oh yeah um, and what you were saying about like those small questions like do you have a boyfriend those small assumptions that people make actually they are quite harmful because they once again you're putting someone in the position where they're having to come out and that's I think as a queer person I don't know how you feel about this but I feel like that's one of the tiring things is having to to constantly come out to new people whether it's an energy provider on the phone who might assume that you have a husband or I don't know, a parcel delivery person or whoever, you know, meeting people and not knowing if that person is a safe space for you. When you, as a, you know, a straight person or heterosexual person, when you don't assume and when you say ask questions like partner, when you keep it neutral, you you indicate to me that you're a safe space and that you're actually not making assumptions about me or my life and that you can't really underestimate how it feels to feel safe with someone um and I don't know you might know Rachel but whether there's been any research into like how microaggressions impact the queer community because obviously there has been research of how it impacts people black people people of color those racial microaggressions they do trigger trauma I don't know if that's the same within queer community but I'd just be interested to find out yeah the literature is very limited but it is it is something that my research is trying to do so when I say 
hate within my research I'm very careful to not use the term hate crime I'm not just talking about things that are illegal I am talking about these everyday instances of microaggressions and so put it to put it really simply the effects are exactly the same as the extreme forms of hate crime it is the feelings of lack of self-worth the withdrawal from society the feeling that you're not good enough the questioning your sexuality and your gender identity yourself when actually it should be the attitudes of the other person the perpetrator that's being questioned it's self-harm it's increased rates of anxiety it's depression it's just and and they're all experienced across the board there's there were a few people within my research that said oh just laugh it off because I know that they're stupid but those same people were reporting elevated levels of anxiety and depression so obviously it's it's still having an effect and I know for myself it is it's terrifying that moment and I I would consider myself quite a confident person in terms of my sexuality and even I still get terrified when someone says oh so do you have a boyfriend and you're like um no and then you is do you say no but and then it's like well if you're saying but it sounds like less than mm-hmm. no but oh but you know I've got I've got a girlfriend and it's like well no it's it's not a but and you shouldn't have made that assumption and forced me into that corner anyway because the way I choose to share my identity with the world is mine to choose you shouldn't force me into that corner of coming out and you have done and then it's like you said it's it's that level of unsafety it's very very real even if it's just a oh like an awkward look from the person that that is still enough Mm -hmm. to send someone into a spiral of thinking that there is something wrong with them and internalizing that and we just we need to challenge that end of (laughs) well it's the not knowing as well because it might be a oh and a look or it could be something else and you you just don't know what it's going to be and I think again it's that uncertainty and yeah, that's just, just not nice, is it? It's just not nice, Rachel. It's not nice at all. <laughs> um, before we move on, what what are like three practical things? I've already covered in previous episodes, like including pronouns in your emails and in your bios. That's really helpful. But what other practical things can people do to be an ally? That's a good question. Because I always use the pronouns in your bio one, but I, I, won't, I won't repeat that. I think one that's really powerful, so I've got one, one that's really powerful is as an ally sharing LGBTQ plus resources or content on social media. Most people have social media platforms nowadays, certainly if they're listening to this podcast, I assume they'll also be on social media. And we don't just want sort of LGBTQ resources and people to be shared in the LGBTQ plus community. They need to be shared and embraced everywhere. And I know when I see an ally sharing stuff like that or listening to my podcast who is not LGBTQ plus, like, wow, the impact of that is absolutely amazing because it's showing that allies are stepping up. The cisgender heterosexual community are thinking about what they need to do. And it's, it's so small. It's so easy. A retweet, a share on your story. It's, it's very easy. So that's number one. You wanted three, didn't you? Yeah, if you don't have three, don't. <laughs> no, I'll keep going. I'll keep going. I think so. It's similar to the similar to pronouns, but I'm going I'm to use it anyway. Getting people to use the word partner, because I think that goes beyond sexuality. That also, again, comes down to gendered language, because if you said girlfriend or boyfriend, you're erasing anyone who's gender does not fit in with the binary as well so just using gender neutral terms like partner 
is a great way to go. And is your podcast UK based or international? I mean, either way, it doesn't matter. But listenership wise, yeah, yes, it's international, darling. International, <laughs> amazing, famous. Yeah. What well, one thing I would really like people to do because this is something that I wasn't aware of, and this is quite it's quite a niche one, but you know, it's, it's it's unusual. I want people to research if you actually have equal marriage in your country. So to mm-hmm. use the UK as an example, we have same sex marriage. So I can marry my girlfriend because legally, because we both identify as cisgender females. However, if either of us identified as non-binary, no marriage for us. We do not have equal marriage. We have same sex marriage. And I think that that point is really important because until I was 26 and I am 26 now, I thought, so since 2012 or whenever it was, I thought we had equal marriage in the UK and I was raving and I thought, yes, LGBTQ plus equality is here. We've made it in terms of the marriage piece, like our work is done. And then someone came on my podcast and said, hold up, Rachel. No, no, no. I had to be misgendered by my partner when we got married in the UK because I'm not a woman, but I had to identify as one of those binary genders in order to get that marriage certificate and I think so the the marriage equality fight is not over and I think that that's something that a lot of people just won't be aware of so if you can research that in your country and then get on campaigning to get equal marriage because it's needed yeah thank you you're welcome so we touched a little bit about identity and growing up kind of in this cisgendered straight world What was it like for you growing up, navigating your identity and like, what has your journey been like to becoming who you are today? I don't think it was a particularly uncommon one, but it's, it was an interesting one in that I can see the effects of a heteronormative model of society really infiltrating my thinking um, because I just did not have a clue that I was gay until I was about 20 years old did not have a clue. I wasn't one of those people that always knew, but thought, I can't be that, let's just bury it, shut it away. Just didn't, just didn't know. But equally, at the same time, I was never interested in men or non-women, shall we say, to be inclusive. I tried to be. And this is one of the things where you'll be listening and thinking, Rachel, you were so obviously gay. Like, come on, how did you not realise? <laughs> so like, I tried to be interested in like the boys that my friends were talking about at school. Um, but I just, I wasn't really. And if ever I got into a situation where, and it very rarely happened, but if ever I got into a situation where a boy was interested in me, I would freak out. And I just thought that, that was nerves because I was like, oh, well, everyone else has had boyfriends before me. And I'm like, I'm getting a bit old now to have not had one. So that was like my life and I went to a Catholic high school it wasn't massively religious but it was enough that you knew that marriage was between a man and a woman and gay people were mercilessly bullied in my school like it, it was horrible so I I was luckily not one of those people who she would say in inverted commas looked gay I had a few mm. comments occasionally but on the whole nothing so I, I was I was pretty safe so I carried on living my like unaware life and then it's it's really funny it's quite embarrassing actually I watched Orange is the New Black and I saw the relationship between the two main characters and I was like holy shit light bulb moment that is what I want 
And then I started going through the internalized homophobia and the fear and the, what does this mean now for my life? Are people going to reject me? I hate myself, you know, all, all the things mm-hmm. you have to go through. But yeah, from, from the beginning, it was, I just didn't, I just didn't have a clue. And I think that that shows the power of society. They never showed me the options and showed me that it would be, well, not options, because you don't choose an opt-in, but you know what I mean? That there was no, there was no alternatives. I was mm-hmm. just told that life was men and women get together and that's it. Yeah. And so there was never, I never had the awareness in my mind that I could be anything else. It's that representation piece, isn't it? If you don't see it, you don't even know it's possible half the time. Um, I, get, I was lucky in the sense that my mum's best friend was gay. So, and you know, my mum preferred me, thought it was safer for me to go to a gay club than a straight club when I was a teenager. So I kind of did have exposure early on and my mum being, you know, younger and kind of like a punk in the 80s and then, yeah, a feminist student in the like late 80s early 90s I think I did just end up seeing the world slightly differently so I think that's why I ended up coming out earlier but I still found it really hard to have that conversation to the extent I actually I came out to her best friend in bright when I was in, in, in Brighton for the weekend I was 15 and and then I came home and I think she helped me as well with like youth groups locally, like, like getting connected with a youth group. And I remember my mum asking me, like, do you have anything you want to tell me? And I was like, no, no, it's OK. You can talk to Auntie Gay. And like, I just I couldn't come out. Like, and it's ridiculous. And I think like if I feel like that with parents who are like left wing social workers, completely fine. Like, how would it be if you had parents who were just completely like no that's terrible there's something wrong with you you know and I I remember I did date a woman at one point who was did come from quite a strict religious background and there was just no way she was going to be able to come out easily at that point so yeah so did it take you long after coming out to really find that sense of like belonging in the world or was it kind of like like was it like a light bulb kind of a key key turning moment where it was just like like this is me um a bit of both actually it took me the better part of a year to sort through it for myself so there was I was in my final year of my undergrad at university so there was a lot of panic a lot of crying a lot of depression a lot of like I I don't I just don't want to be this way um and I had because I had such an incredible group of best friends I I did or do taekwondo and all my best friends were in taekwondo with me and we were so close that very quickly into my journey of realizing this I came out to my four best friends and whilst that was absolutely terrifying and it was a lot of like tears before I could tell them having them very early on probably to an extent saved my life or at least made the journey a lot more comfortable for me because they helped me go to counselling they were there like late at night early in the morning if I needed them because I didn't want to be alone because I didn't want to sit with these thoughts and so doing all that and then coming out to everyone in my life that was important so my family my other friends my home friends um, I got my mum and dad to come out to the rest of my family on my behalf because I just like the emotional like it's so draining you feel exhausted mm-hmm. after doing it maybe because I made such a meal out of it whereas nowadays I just be like 
by the way I'm gay but back then obviously it wasn't that simple so yeah I got a lot of people to do the work for me shout out to mum and dad for doing that (laughs) thank you um but then I think from then it was just like it was this side of me that yeah I probably was a little bit embarrassed with sometimes I was still a bit scared to come out to people and I had no LGBTQ plus like peers whatsoever all my friends were cisgender and straight and they're obviously incredible allies they're absolutely amazing but I had no one so I think that limited me really truly embracing this side of myself and really like Mm -hmm. singing from the rooftops that it's an amazing thing not that you necessarily need to do that but you know I like to and then I guess it was realizing how much hate there is and going through my master's and going through my PhD and just realizing my passion for helping people embrace their identity when on such a small scale I didn't embrace mine and I know that people have it so much worse than me so much worse like I am so privileged in my journey I like cannot explain how much support I had but if I felt that way imagine how other people are feeling and I was like you know what identity isn't something that we should be hiding it's something that we should be celebrating uplifting inspiring people to be themselves and to to praise that to embrace it in a a big visual way if that's what they feel comfortable doing of course so nowadays having found my community of queer people and investing a lot of my time in it and investing pretty much everything I do in life my PhD my podcast the Instagram what I want to do for my future career in LGBTQ plus identity it's meant that yeah I have fully now embraced that side of myself and I'm ready to help other people do the same oh amazing I look forward to the future book which I'm sure will be be in the world at some point (laughs) oh it will be do not worry (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah because it's like growing up when people would be like well why do you need gay clubs or why do you need gay pride and I always remember feeling like I just didn't have the language to explain it. And I almost felt like, yeah, but why do we? And it's like, because you can't go into a predominantly heterosexual bar and be yourself with a guarantee. It's not guaranteed. You don't know who's going to come in, who might be homophobic. I remember when I was at university in a club, the bouncers threatened to kick me and my girlfriend out. Like, and that's why it's so important to have those spaces I kind of wanted to add that really I don't know if you have anything to add to that <laughs> no, no I think you've you've summed it up perfectly that is why we have pride it's why we have LGBTQ plus community centers like the goal is that we don't need any of those places mm-hmm. because it won't be such a sort of taxing thing for people to have to come out and sort through their gender and sexuality but right now because of the heteronormative cisgender model of society these safe spaces are needed to give people a little bit of extra help but we'll know we've made it when they're no longer needed (laughs) exactly it's like if you see people cisgendered street people kissing on the beach for example and it's just kind of normal right but I know with all of me I would not feel comfortable doing that I would just not do it you know and it's those little that that's another example of just how you can't just be fully yourself and I think that does then have an impact on your relationship right like you know you can, you're in the most loving relationship you get on really well with your partner but still not being able to have that kind of public intimacy I think ha- has an impact it's just I think it's quite subtle and you don't always notice I don't know do, do you find that or what's your experience 
Um, I do have a bit of a fuck it attitude towards that and I, I will hold hands with my girlfriend, but I know that not everyone is comfortable to do so to do so, sorry. And I totally see why. And I can see how, like you said, it would limit that sort of it's an aspect of intimacy, isn't it? It's an aspect of an expression of your love and your companionship for the person. If you feel like you can't do it in certain spaces, it does have an effect. And I think it's probably important to mention as well that we're very lucky in the UK and that we can do those things legally. Whereas if my girlfriend and I went to Dubai together, mm-hmm. we can't do anything because we'd get arrested. And for that reason, I will never go to Dubai until things have changed. But mm-hmm. it's it's very scary in that sense that there are people living under these regimes of just complete intolerance that they can be thrown in prison, they can be stoned to death, they can be gang raped by men to make mm-hmm. them straight in inverted commas. Like this yeah. is happening now. It's not hundreds of years ago, it is happening now. And yeah, like mm-hmm. we need to we need to tackle it across the globe, not just in our sort of niches and environments at home and there is a great charity micro rainbow that works specifically with asylum seekers from the lgbtq plus community i recently discovered them because part my part-time role involves working with asylum seekers and refugees and so yeah i found them and they, they do some really good work in the world and i think that's something that you know has always brought like i have a, a big sense of gratitude for being in the uk even though i don't always feel safe and like hate crime exists here the fact that I can have a wife and live with my wife legally is massive (laughs) you know the fact that I don't have to marry someone that I really don't love just to fall in line and fulfill family wishes it's massive really and I, I it's hard to even comprehend how traumatic it must be to not be able to be yourself at all through fear of like massive danger you, you know it's not something we'll ever ever be able to relate to or ever be able to truly understand but we've still got to help them haven't we oh yeah 100%. it's all the, all the more reason to because we take it for granted that we are safe mm-hmm. yeah definitely because then there's that intersection as well especially like if you're in the uk you have this hostile environment towards you as an asylum seeker or as a refugee but then you also might have hostility from people from within your own culture who are homophobic. So you get that kind of double homophobic kind of racist impact. Again, that's why the intersectional piece is so important. And I want to continuously highlight that because it's remembering how our identities and our experiences intersect. And depending on those different intersections, depending on your journey, or just your experiences will be so different. And so not everyone is just like for like and it's just encouraging people and inviting people to look at kind of the nuance and and actually look at the individual, look at the human being in front of you and learn from them because we can't all speak for everybody else. And so, you know, as human beings, of course, our brains, we like to generalise. It makes our life easier when we have boxes. There's nothing necessarily inherently wrong with having, like, these are apples, this is fruit. <laughs> those boxes could be really helpful but the the less we put humans in a box the better I think that comes back to your point about let's just get rid of let's get rid of the box and let's just do our own thing okay exactly (laughs) more colorful just break down the sides I guess one other bigger question before I ask you a quick fire question is what are some of the lessons you learned in 2020 
that your journey so this is quite a deep one but <laughs> that your journey exploring your identity a doesn't end when you figure out that you're lgbtq plus but b isn't a journey just for people who are lgbtq plus so i think that that is something a lot of people take for granted because you're never questioned if you're cisgender and you're never questioned if you're heterosexual people don't explore their gender and their sexuality in the same way that LGBTQ plus people are forced to do. Mm-hmm. And I would never want to force people to do it. But I think that the the exploration piece of knowing more about yourself, of being introspective, of knowing what your sexuality is, of knowing what your gender is, is so important just to know more about yourself. And I think that that's something in particular I've learned this year from mainly from people just having conversations with me about their processes coming out, realizing that their their gender and their sexuality is fluid or isn't binary. I've thought, oh, like I've not questioned those sides of myself in the sense that I think that I don't necessarily fit into the sort of boxes I've I've put myself in, but just in terms of like, like, well, why is it that I feel like a woman? And why is it that I feel like I fit in that box? Is it because of society or is it actually something within me that I quite like and therefore that's okay too and I just think expanding that knowledge of gender and sexuality has just been a really cathartic good process for myself mm-hmm. and not LGBTQ plus specific I've just I've learned to to stop a bit I mean I haven't stopped I say that being completely hypocritical because I say like the pandemic forced everyone to stop and I continued with 10,000 projects every day. But I did before I picked up those 10,000 projects for, for a brief period of time, have a lot of time to just focus on a few things. And I thought that that was really powerful. And I think that as a society, we're always like, go, 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 get the answers, get the job, get this, get that. You've always got to be moving And I think it's so stressful and it's so like overwhelming that sometimes actually learning to just be in that present moment and it it comes back to mindfulness and stuff. And I'm not a particularly like woo-woo person at all, but in fact, I'm not, but (laughs) I do really like the idea of mindfulness and being present and doing things for you in the moment rather than doing things to attain X. You've got to be in the moment right now. And I think that's really important. Okay, so one last one though before we move on was just a quick one. And I think you've already answered this, but what inspired you to start your podcast over the rainbow? It was creating, and there are so many spaces out there, but it was creating that space for LGBTQ plus education and representation. And it's the the format of education and representation that I wanted to see in the world. And I know it shouldn't all be about me, but it happens to be that other people want to see that too. So it's not just purely a a selfish thing, but I wanted a place for everyone to go to, to learn, to grow, to be represented, to feel like they had a voice. And it's a place for allies as well. I think sometimes LGBTQ plus spaces can feel like they're just for LGBTQ plus people. Obviously, no disrespect to the amazing work people are doing, but I want allies to come into. I want them to see that it's a space for them as well, because we need to be a, a full cohesive community of people rather than being the straights over there and the gays over there. We need to come together. So that was, in a nutshell, my motivation. Cool. Thank you. Okay, so now for the questions that I ask everyone at the end. What are you most grateful for right now? My girlfriend, 100%. She makes me smile every day. 
<laughs> Lovely. What is one of your favourite ways to practice self-care at the moment? Oh, I was going to say running, but I'm, I've banged on about this for months and that I'm injured, so I can't, I can't actually run right now. So I, I like to go on walks or bike rides or do a HIIT workout, just exercise really gets, you know, gets me feeling good. Oh, cool. Yeah. And what does activism mean to you? It means everyone sharing up for each other. It means doing the work, getting uncomfortable, asking yourself and others the hard questions to really push society to be an inclusive space for everyone, not just for LGBTQ plus people, not just for the white cis men on top, especially not for him. He's had his time. <laughs> it's, it is like breaking down all those preconceptions and misconceptions and stereotypes you've had in life and making sure you are welcoming every single person and every single identity into your life in the small and the big ways. Thank you. <laughs> I always ask that because I think we have such fixed ideas about activism. I, in this season, I really want to explore all the different ways that people see activism because I think it's inspiring, isn't it, to hear what other people think. So when you hear the term Brave Hearts Rising, what comes to mind? Oh, that's a good question. I like that. For me, it's someone who has been through a journey of some kind of struggle, whatever that is, it can be anything. And it's them realising that actually their identity, their who they are is great in and of itself. They don't need to question that anymore and they can sort of rise up and share with the world who they are with no limitations with no fear of not being good enough that's sort of what it embodies for me oh thank you I love that I love asking that question now because it's just giving me a total different like feeling when I hear that it makes me feel really good because I just think oh yeah it's like the hero's journey and we're like yeah <laughs> on our way <laughs> yeah exactly so you've probably already answered this one for us but tell us about a book that's changed the way you see the world Definitely the one I already mentioned earlier, Atlas Shrugged, I think just in terms of it talking about the power of the mind and how the mind is just this machine of absolute untapped beauty and what it can produce. But also it it is a reflection on how we treat each other in society in the book and how there are people in the world who try to get a leg up by loosing off the minds of other people so it's all about industry in a dystopian US and it's about what governments do where they just sit on their <laughs> piles of money and force other people to work for nothing when the people who are working for nothing are actually the people who are offering real value in the world mm -hmm. and so I loved that too and I, I just thought it was such a reflection on how society is still bearing in mind this book was written I mean it was only written sort of 70 years ago now but still it, nothing's changed and I think it needs to yeah thank you for sharing and then finally if you could tell the listeners one thing what would it be just to be kind to yourself there are so many things in this world that make you doubt who you are and make you think you're not good enough or you can't do something and you know what you can you're you're here for a reason you are perfect just the way you are and you don't need anyone else to tell you otherwise it's I'm here to tell you that you are good enough and you should be telling yourself that too thank you now before you go what are you currently working on and how can listeners find out more about you and your work uh, currently working on my podcast and my PhD they sort of 
inter- <laughs> interlink anyway, all about LGBTQ plus identity. So I'm I'm on uh, most social media sites. So for my podcast, it's on Instagram. It's at underscore over the rainbow podcast on Twitter at over rainbow pod. And I'm also within all that working on my queer book club called Reading the Rainbow, where we read a queer book every month and we hop on a Zoom call and discuss it. Or you can, if video calls aren't your thing, there's a Facebook group for it where you can just send your comments. So this month we're reading This Book is Gay by Juno Dawson. So if anyone wants to get involved, they are more than welcome to shoot me a message and start reading the queer universe with us. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Thank you so much, Rachel. I feel like we've covered so much and it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. It's been nice to be on the uh, sort of other end of the podcast chair for once. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Brave Hearts Rising podcast. To support the podcast and help people like you find us, please consider giving us a five star rating on your podcast platform of choice. And if you'd like to stay in touch, head on over to www.lisapasco.com forward slash say hello, where you can sign up to receive my nourishing notes. And these include gentle self-care reminders, journaling prompts, inspiration and more. They're also a great way to stay up to date with all my current offerings and events. So have a fabulous week. Remember to be kind to yourself. Take care. Bye.